Welcome to our first learning of 2019. And the reason I'm using the microphone, not because you can't hear me and my voice isn't loud enough, is because these sessions are being recorded. So, <laughs> so they've been recorded. So the people who aren't here are going to be able to listen to them. So just by way of introduction, for this year, we're following the God story. Um, Charles is going to tell you a little bit more about that. But I've been tasked with getting the speakers each month. And Sally said we need to start well. So Charles and I are doing the first <laughs> God story on creation, <laughs> the fall, the flood, <laughs> and the tower. And thereafter, I'll just name some of the speakers. <laughs> she didn't really say that. <laughs> Truth be told. Oh, anyway. <laughs> so um, just some names um, for the coming year. We've got Jill Weber. Ian Nicholson, Adam Heather, Dan Slatter, Lucy Hill, Mike Andrea, Roger Ellis, and Scott and Misty Bauer. So we've got some great speakers coming to share the God story with us. Um, what I'm, I will be doing um, each month, I'll be asking the speaker if they'll be staying for lunch or whether they'll need um, somewhere to stay. So we're going to be hosting that speaker. So I'll be emailing out. Um, and I thought maybe, you know, a few of us can get together and offer them lunch or offer them a bed the night before so that we can all, you know, really make this a hospitable trip when they do come and share the God story with us. So now I shall hand over to Charles, who's going to say a bit more about the God story. Thank you. Caroline's done all the prep of organising all those speakers to come, and it's a bit of a feat, so I think we should give her a bit of a round of applause for doing that. It's, it's, uh, yeah, so it's been really, so it's really exciting for the rest of uh, the year, the speakers that are going to come. But, uh, yeah, we start as we mean to go on, you know, set the bar high with uh, Caroline, and I'm her warmer act today so that's good okay so we all know uh, the God story um, it's just always good to remind us why we choose to do it's too loud <laughs> John Peters has said it's too loud he's the deaf one so <laughs> so yeah, I always get told that okay so why why do we do the the God story what is it that's so amazing that we keep doing it year in year out and that's because the God story is this all-consuming story that spans thousands and thousands of years previous and then spans thousands and thousands of years to come. Yeah, this is the story of God um, over all things and in all things. And what the God story is, whilst it includes nations and yeah, the whole of creation, we choose to, to home in on individuals, people like... Um, King David, who chose to have a, you know, a, be adulterous, and people like um, Abraham, who pretended that his wife was his sister, not once, but a couple of times, and then his son did it again after that. But we have this, this story that's over all things, and yet we choose to home in on these people that God chose, that God put his blessing on, and uh, the whole of creation and its story of being restored and redeemed and the new life to come is why we choose to do the God story, because it gives us hope, individuals like us who don't have it all together, that we can join in with this story that's been going on and that continues. And so it's, it's, poignant. it's as poignant every time that we choose to come together. It's as powerful because this story is God's story, but it's our story. It's our inheritance and we are choosing today to, to step into that again. So it's an exciting time. Um, this is a quote. Um, I cannot ask, answer the question of what I ought to do unless I first answer the question of which story I'm a part of. With this, in the God story, we find our place, we find our purpose, we find our call, we find our very meaning. And so if you're uh, in a position, you're like, you know, God, what is it that you're, you're doing in my life? What is it that you want me to do? Uh, we first have to answer the question of which story am I a part of, that we're all connected, that we've all got um, yeah, significance as individuals, but together there's a story that we're, we're joining in with this morning. Um, I don't know if you remember that Christy did this amazing um, sonata uh, explanation on the, the God story when we did it a couple of years ago. A sonata is a piece of music. Um, Ruti's nodding her head. She knows all about it. So I don't really know lots and lots about it. But what I do know is this bit here, um, that we, we start here in what we call the exposition, which is the home key. 
So where the music starts, where it's all together, um, and it's beautiful, and it's a lovely sound. And then we go to this time of like tension mountain, and it goes further and further away from the home key until you get to like this dramatic bit in the middle. Um, and then slowly in the snot of peace, then it comes back and order is restored and you go back to the home key. And, and this is a, a way in which we can describe the God story in that we, sorry, Deb, I'm not transparent. Um, but yes, yeah, so it almost like this is creation here in, in the exposition where, where there's a perfect world. What? What? <laughs> where... Um, yeah, so there's the beautiful home key, all of creation. It's amazing. God's walking hand in hand with man, and it's beautiful. Wow, why would we ever move from there? Well, it's because we're man, and we sin, and we move further and further away from God. And then, you know, you get this part, and you know that da-da-da-da. That's sort of like, that's the bit at the top where we're so far away from, from, um, from where we began. And then this part of, like, coming back down is obviously where Jesus enters the scene. And we, um, and that's a bit of a spoiler. I don't know if you knew that bit. But um, then we go back to, to this, this is Revelation bit here, where we come back into to home key. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we're going with this and the story where we're going. Um, my bit today, I get to talk about creation and perfection. So I'm really happy and excited to talk about that. But I'm going to do it in these four, four points. I mean, um, there's lots of different ways you can talk about creation, but when, when I've been reading and prepping, these are the four things that I kind of felt like God was speaking to me about, and therefore I'm going to try and share with you. Um, so in the beginning, God, creation from chaos, the dawn of man, and um, relationship of trust. They're the things that I would like to focus in on. Okay. So uh, the story starts. In the beginning, God. Oh, we've got some people coming. I'll just pause it a second. We can start there. Dawn of man, relationship of trust. Hi, Holly. Hi, Sam. You're just in time. We'd literally just said this. <laughs> welcome, welcome. Okay. So, yeah, in the beginning, God. And I just wanted to, like, pause there. Can you imagine that? Just in the beginning, God. Nothing else. No created anything. Nothing but God. Like we, perfect, yeah, perfect, all-consuming God. Can, can you imagine that? Like, like what, what, what did that look like? What did they say to each other in that moment? Like, what was going on in the beginning, God? This is our conception. This is our birth. This is our origin. This is where our story starts. This is where we find ourselves. This is our beginning, and ultimately, this is our end. In the beginning, God. So I've been looking into the, the Trinity quite a bit, and um, I was really, really, really excited because last week we've got Amazon now, like Amazon Prime, three, this like 30 day trial. So I, I wanted this book for like 10, no, not 10 years, it's only been now, 2016. Three years, I've wanted this book. And Chrissy said, yes, I can get it. But then he said, no, he didn't say it. But anyway, I ordered it in between time. And it came the next day. Woo! So I've been reading this book, and it's really, really amazing. So Richard Raw, um, and it's all about the Trinity. And, and we've, we've seen this photo many times at, um, at different proximity events. Yeah, so that's the, the picture of the Trinity. And so I've been um, looking into the, the, the relationship of the Trinity, the three, uh, yeah, three in one God that we have. I'm like shaking here. I need a stand. <laughs> I'm going to have to hold it. Sorry, okay. No, I can't. Okay, so. You can, like, put yourself in between. 
Okay. So I've been doing a lot of uh, looking into the Trinity as a part of research for this. And um, in my degree as well, we looked at the Trinity quite a bit and I had to write an essay on it. So yeah, I've just, it's just something that captivates me, this, this idea of the, the, the Godhead three in one. Um, and what that means, and so, and and the, what what you discover is the more you look into it, the more you don't know anything about it, <laughs> and the more you try and imagine it, the more you just get lost in it. But this this awesome three, the the God, and and, and where we pick up the story here, the Word and the Spirit together, um, and in this perfect loving relationship, it's just an an awesome thing, um, and so. Yes, yeah, so what do we know about what do we know about God at this point? We know that he uh, we know uh, he made God we made man in his image. So there's something about the the Godhead 3 that is like us, which is amazing. Um, we know that it's not two because if it's two, it's binary. So if you're if there's two things, if the Trinity was two, so it was like God and spirit or God and Jesus for instance, um, what that means is there's not there's not a flow. So if in in a binary situation in like politics, you've got your for and you've got your against. If you put a third party in there, at least there's some dialogue and there's some movement. But if there's two, there's this like back and forth. There's this back and forth. But as soon as you put a third element into that mix, then there's a flow and there's movement and there's. <laughs> I just like to know I'm standing for no no. Um, yeah, so, so you, the balance shifts instantly when you have three. It's not this, yeah? So that, that, that right at the beginning of time, there we have this three movement, this flow of the, of the, the Godhead. And we we've, we've, might have heard this before, um, the perichoresis. So this is one way in which um, some uh, monks decided to, to describe the Trinity is this perichoresis, this dance um, of, of the spirit. So the dance goes really, really, really quick. So it almost looks like it's one, but there's three parts to it. And actually, you can join in. And so it's just that this, this, this motion of moving really, 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 really quick, these three people moving really, 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 really quick, and that is the perichoresis dance, yeah? So you don't know where, you don't know where one person starts and the other person begins, and it's just this, this movement. And that's, that's one way that we can describe the Trinity. In the book, he's got this really lovely way of describing it. Um, so my mum and dad, they had a big bed. Well, they do now. In the, when I was young, they didn't. It was really, really tiny. And I remember sometimes mum and dad's like reading me a story, putting me to bed, and then you get, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning, and you're like, oh, I just want to get into bed with mum and dad. So you go into bed with mum and dad, and I don't know about you, but the quilt for me would always be too high. <laughs> so I'd always have my neck like over here on the, in between mum and dad. And then I'm like... Then I'll get too hot. It's like really, really hot, but I, but I still want to be in bed with mom and dad. And then my dad would like push me away because I start kicking him. And then my, I've got my mom's breath in my face and I didn't like that. So then I'm like, just, you know, it was just, it was really, really, really messy. It was really, really, really hot, but I wanted to be there. I didn't want to be in bed on my own. And that's what he describes the Trinity like. It's like, it's this... You, you just want to be there. There's something about that security. There's something about that love. There's something about that space, that relationship that you just want to get in there because it's good and it's home and it's comforting and it's messy and it's smelly sometimes and maybe it's a bit hot, but it's, it's love. And that's, I was like, what a beautiful way to describe the Trinity. If you, have you ever heard the Biddles talk about their night's sleep? They, have, they start with John and Emma and Jude's in the bed next to them. Then Hallie comes in. Then Theo comes in and Theo sleeps like horizontally in the bed and then John's like literally on the head of the bed. But they said, we wouldn't change it. We wouldn't change that. There's no way that we wouldn't want to have our bed just filled with our kids in that place. And that's, that's one way we can describe the Trinity. I'm going to read from this book. So are you all ready for this? This is a piece of gold. Okay. This is, this is one way Richard, uh, me and Rich, me and Rich, um, Trinity. Okay, so it says, if a loving creator started this whole thing, then there has to be a DNA connection, as it were, between the one who creates and what he created. One of the many wonderful things that scientists are discovering as they compare their observations through microscopes with those telescopes is that the pattern of the neutrons, protons, and atoms is the similar 
to the patterns of planets, stars, and galaxies. Both are in orbit, and all are in relationship to everything else. We know that the same is true of biology. Um, some biocentrism so brilliantly demonstrates the universe is created by life and not the other way around. Life flow is at the ground of everything, absolutely everything. I love that. So even, even so Christy, are you just able to draw an atom on the, not atom, the anatom on the board? <laughs> the one I showed you to draw. But like, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That, that absolutely, you know, even, even when we look to the stars in the sky, there's that, that's, there's that, um, that's that movement of like these, these things that are circling each other, everything. So if you think the expanse of the universe are like the orbits and they're circling each other too. Oh, that's not the one I showed you. Okay, do the one I showed you. Phil, stop distracting Christy from his task. <laughs> So that's helium, guys. Thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So even in an atom, you get three. Oh, sound so. But you get three elements. Okay. So you've got a proton, neutron, and electron, and that's like so that the tiniest element of whatever is is this still this like the Trinity. You've got this trace of of, of the Creator God. I just love that even from from here to the minutest detail, to the expanse of the universe, there's traces of this, this trinity God at work, this DNA of, of the, the Godhead three. And um, it talks about, in Richard Raw about the guy who split the atom. Who knows what happens when you split the atom? Yeah, yeah. So we, you get, you get Hiroshima, Hiroshima, Hiroshima. <laughs> Harissa, I was watching um, some cooking program this morning. That's why that's in my head. Right? <laughs> yeah, so like, just there's, there's this, <laughs> you know, it's not good. What happened when we split the atom was not a good thing. We're, we're made for relationship. We're made to be close to each other, even if it's like sweaty and smelly and horrible. But there's this, this is the way we've been made because we reflect our creator. And I love that um, picture. Okay, and what's really, really, really key is you can't have, no, just, I didn't think you were going to be here, Phil. <laughs> I thought you, I thought you, so now I'm like, okay, I've got to really give. But so there's like, there's these three parts of an atom, okay. So what, what I understand about this is not any one of those things gives the, gives this atom life. It's the relationship that they share between them that creates life. So it's not, it's not, thank you, Sally. So it's not, it's not, you know, if we, if we look at God, it, the power and the life and the, the love and the thing that spoke creation into being was not one individual, it was the relationship. So when we say in the beginning, God, the thing that gives that such power and the thing that, that gives that such beauty is this relationship that, that we see even displayed in the smallest atom. It's that energy that multiplies and creates life. And it's the relationship of the Trinity that we get to join in with and we get to partner with and that life that we get to step into. That's what I wanted to say. Okay. So, so that's part one of, uh, of where I wanted to go. Um, and we'll just land on a theologian called Maltman. And um, this is her, Maltman. Uh, yeah, and this describes kind of that, that relationship of the perichoresis. Precisely through the personal characteristics that distinguish them from one another, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwell in one and communicate eternal life to one another. That's their relationship. In the perichoresis, the very thing that divides them becomes that which binds them together. And I love that. I love that. That speaks to us today if we look at the world in which we're, we're living. Okay, so... The next, the next thing... So we've got, in the beginning, God... And then God decides to create. And um, 
when I, I've been doing some painting in January, Christy can testify to, to this. And I really try to draw a rainbow in darkness because that was kind of like the, the picture I had. If we think of, of God speaking light and I was just thinking of like refraction and just like when that hits the water and the rainbow. And I was thinking, if you think in the beginning there's nothing and then there's just this God speaking light and out of him comes uh, this rainbow. So I tried to draw it and um, Christy said I wrecked it as soon as I... <laughs> As soon as I put the darkness around it. Um, okay, so, so why did God choose to create? Like, why did he, why would you not just stop there in the beginning, God? Because that is perfect, yeah? That is like love, feeling love, being loved, and, and just giving yourself over to the next person who gives themselves over to you. Like, why would you decide to create? And the truth is, we don't really know. We don't really know. But when a man loves a woman, they decide to create, don't they? So maybe there's a bit of that in there. I don't know. Just don't know. But God decided to take a risk and out of, out of the nothing he created. So I'm going to um, write some uh, phrases on here that I don't know how to say, but I didn't know how to write. Go for it, someone. Thank you. That is a Latin phrase for out of nothing. Okay. So, so into the ex nihilo, God creates. So out of the nothing, God creates. Okay. So what was the world like? We read in creation, it was like it was formless and it was empty. So a way of writing that is, now this will be a fun word to say. Tuhu wa buhu. Okay? <laughs> tuhu wa buhu. Okay, so tuhu means unordered. That's just cool Latin. I'm really glad Rose isn't here. Okay. No, but it'd be really nice if she was. It would be really good if she was. Yeah. But just for this bit, <laughs> for the sake of the recording. <laughs> Cut that bit out, Chris. Yeah. Okay. Tuhu means unordered, and wa buhu means uninhabited. Okay, so this is so there was an there was disorder and there was nothing. Okay, and that's that's um, what God chose to to speak into. God moves into the empty waste, formless space, and creates order. He creates beauty. And for me, time and time again, when you read the Bible, you see God doing that again. I was just thinking of verses in Isaiah where he where it talks about the barren wastelands and God, God decides to create an, an incredible city. In Isaiah 54, it talks about that. Are you writing these words down? That's good. It was a Hebrew. Hebrew, Hebrew, Hebrew word, Hebrew word. Okay, so but for me, for me, this has extra significance because I feel like this is a bit of my story. It's a bit of what I've carried and a bit of what I feel God's had a call on my life too. I had someone give me a word and say, Shell, you're always going to be someone that steps into barren lands. And I was like, great. <laughs> Thanks for that. But, like, um, but in a good way, obviously. Like Stanford. Like Stanford. Um, <laughs> for those in live in Stanford and the recording, those things are beautiful, please. Um, no, but yeah, but this this call to to go to the deserted wastelands it talks about in the Bible, and that's that's something that I really do feel like God has called me to. When I was eighteen, and that was a prayer room in there, Steve Lawton um, showed me a a a rapper that was called Skinny Man, and he would always t he had a song called Counselor State of Mind, and in that he talked about the the wastelands and the barrenlands, but he was talking about estates, and I used to listen to that in my in my prayer slot. One, because I thought, I'm really cool listening to this. Like, look at me, Christian, and I can listen to this and still worship God. But, like, um, but, that, but there was something of that that really captivated my heart to think, actually, this is our call. This is what God did right at the beginning. He stepped into the formless waste. He stepped into the, the nothing, the, the places where no one thought that they could live, and he, he formed beauty. And so um, in, that's, you know, that's where, for me, 
felt like God opened the door and I stepped into Reading, which was a council estate. And it was actually going to be knocked down because the houses were inhabitable. They were built, for, they were built to last 10 years and people are living in them for 60 years. And there's mould and there was, you know, there was damp coming in and all, all that. It was really, really, really gross. Um, and I just, the moment I stepped onto that council estate... I just was filled with so much hope of like what God could do. What, and it's not just in terms of the, the place and the environment. Then you start speaking to the people and you think they feel deserted. They feel like no life can come from, you know, their, their generational stuff. And God's got a story for them. You know, this story of God speaking into the, the darkness, speaking into the formless, speaking to the, where there's no hope and bringing his creativity, that rainbow that just, you know, into the darkness. That's... That's what God wants to do. And so for me, I just love this picture of in creation. That's, that's where we, yeah, we, we start. Okay. So <coughs> I'm not moving on just yet because I've got some facts. Who knows the speed of light? Come on, Phil. 300,000. Okay. So, oh, yeah, that's good. Is that 300,000 Okay, very good. Okay, so you'd like 300,000 kilometers per second. So that means if I shoot a light gun from where I am standing, it goes around the world, which is 20, 25,000 miles. So it goes around me seven times around through my heart before I can move. That's the speed of light. Seven times before I can move. <laughs> right, these are from Alan Emerson, so take out with him. Okay, right. So let's go to the moon. So, we, if the, so light gets to the moon in one spe- second. At the speed of light, the sun is 91 million miles away. Speed of light gets us there in eight minutes. To the edge of the galaxy, speed of light gets us there uh, 50,000 years to get to the edge of our own Milky Way. In, the, in our corner of the universe, there are 17 galaxies in our corner of the universe, uh, there are 10,000 more galaxies that we know of. So some more stats. The humble star called the sun, one million Earths can fit into our sun. Uh, there's a bigger star, Arcturus, which is 25 million of our stars fit into Arcturus. And even bigger is Hercules. 100 million Antares fit into Hercules. It's huge. The universe is massive. And Isaiah 40 says, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls each forth by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Genesis reminds us of the awesomeness and incomparable nature of who God is. Love that. So just to, to say about the creation story, because I guess that's what we're here to do today. Um, so that in creation, there's 10 acts of speaking, split up into two, three days. So there are 10 acts of, uh, yeah, um, 10 acts of speaking, eight acts of making, seven pronouncements of... Good, well done. Okay, so in the first three days, God separates and parts. So order is created in the... E.g., Light and darkness, <laughs> and water and dry land. The waters in the skies are held back from the waters in the sea, leaving space for something to emerge, okay? And in the next three days, he populates and fills. God fills the space he has created with life into the hoo <laughs> okay? Inhabitants for the skies, inhabitants for the seas, and the land. Day seven is a complete break because it was good. So that's creation. Creation from chaos. Okay, and then um, obviously we haven't talked about our part and we are really important to this story. So um, I've uh, given this the, the big title of the dawn of man. Okay, so God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Um, and if you've ever listened to Adam Cox do this. It's really, really amazing. But he does it in like three hours. So I'm going to try and not do that today, but capture something of what he shared. But he, 
<clears throat> so we have this, this God of three um, in perfect relationship, this powerful relationship that they share, this God of three deciding to create and taking the risk to, to, to speak into the tohu, to speak into the wabuhu, um, and then he says, oh, there's just no suitable helper to be found. Oh, that's what Adam said, but basically, yeah. So, you know, he's, he wants something more. He's not satisfied with what he creates. He wants something more, wants something more of a relationship to, to share. So, um, so we have, and Adam describes it as like God kneeling down in the, in the dust and, and again forming out of nothing, forming out of dust and waste and, and emptiness and God breathing his life into this body that he's formed. Um, and I was just really captivated by this picture of, of yeah, just, just that moment, that moment where Adam's breathed in the, the breath of God and then he opens his eyes, and all he can see is God. I just, can you imagine all you knowing, uh, like the mo that moment you wake up, the, everything you've ever known is just filled with God? I, like, that must be an awesome, awesome place to be, just God. And he breathes out, God? He's just, you know, that's that his, God's breath has entered him. God's breath exits him. And, and, and again, probably in that moment, it enters him again. And he breathes it out. And there's that, just that exchange of, like, breath. So what I want you to do is turn to the person next to you and just stare at them for 20 seconds. Some of you might be more comfortable with this than others. <laughs> All right, Pete and Deb. <laughs> Suddenly getting a bit hot in here. <laughs> and then breathe in, breathe out. No, Jake, don't do mouth to mouth. Just, just that, just imagine that. that. I mean, for us, it's a bit awkward, isn't it? Unless, unless you're... Okay, Eddie, Eddie enjoyed that a lot. <laughs> Eddie is blushing. Why are you blushing? <laughs> <laughs> but for, for us, that's just, it's just a bit weird. It's just a bit awkward, unless it's your, you know, your Pete and Deb and it's just a lovely experience. But, but, just, but just imagine, like, how long did they leave it for? That's what I wonder. How long did, they, did that moment last? Was it a second? Was it, was it a year that they just spent looking at each other? And, you know, God's like, I created you. You're a part of me. When I'm sure Kate and David, all that they do with baby Josiah is look at it. In fact, I just want to tell a funny story because Sally would share this with me. When they first came home with Simeon, all Sally could do was look at Simeon and just, she said, didn't want to watch the telly, didn't want anything, just like, I love this boy. I've created this boy. This boy looks like me. This boy's a part of me. It's just like, Rob, Rob? And Rob's got the telly on, just like... <laughs> <laughs> you don't remember a lot, though, do you, Rob? Right? So, but just, just imagine that. Just imagine that. And imagine Adam just receiving all that love and all he knows is love and all he can give back is love. And that is us entering the Trinity. That's us entering that relationship, that, that power dynamic of just being loved and giving love. And I just, yeah, I wonder. I wonder how long that, that moment lasted for. Probably a lot longer than your 20 awkward seconds that you just had. Um, yeah, and so I guess that is our home key. That's the place that we enter. That's the place that we uh, belong. That's our, that's our origin, that, that moment of being loved and giving love and knowing love and being created and, and giving that back to God. Um, <clears throat> St. Francis Assisi, uh, so I've been told, used to go off to a mountainside and what he would do is he would kneel down and he would look over the hills and the beauty, and his followers would be down the bottom, and they'd be watching Francis Assisi at the top of this hill, and all he would do is sit there and say, God. And then a minute will pass, and then two minutes will pass, then an hour will pass, and two hours will pass. And his followers are still looking there, and, and, he's, and then he'd say, God. And just, he'd stay there for hours, and that's all he would say. It was just that that being one with God, that, that knowing God, that's all he wanted. That's all he wanted to be filled with. And what, a, what an amazing thing uh, that, yeah, that he, 
I mean, he can teach us in accessing that place, even in, you know, far from creation's story of just knowing God and being in that place. And what a discipline that is, just to fill your mind with, with only him. Okay, so we're moving on to point four, which is the relationship of, of trust. So I'll read straight from the Bible for, for once in this talk. So, then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put man that he had formed. The God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Bits skipping a bit ahead. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work of it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it, you will certainly die. Okay. Um, so, yeah, just want to start with that. Just that, that so, so now Adam and God have come out of that place of just intense looking at each other. And now they're walking hand in hand in the garden. And, and God says, you can, have, you can have it all. You can have the freedom. I want you to work the land. Um, so we've got right in the, the beginning of, of, of creation story that we have rule over. So God's given us authority. God's given us the rule over all things. Um, and he had freedom to roam. Um, he was created to be fruitful. He was created to create, again, reflecting the, the, the DNA of, of the Trinity. Um, he was created to work. We're created to work, guys. Really sorry about that. But it is good for us, so the Bible says. Um, but also, he was created to trust. God didn't want a robot when he created Adam. God wanted someone that chose to enter in. God, God created someone that... Um, that he wanted to choose to trust him. And the way that, that God did that um, is by creating this, this, this other tree and have the rule that you can't eat from that. And actually what, what God's doing is he's wanting to, to grow in Adam this sonship, what it means to trust. Um, so, <clears throat> so that's what happened. So, yeah, uh, there's this quote here. It says, trust cannot be formed unless there are options and choice. God says, I love you. I want to develop your sonship. I love you. If, it, if you do this, it will mean separation. So you have to trust me. And, um, and that, that is true, isn't it? There is an element in, in all relationships where we have to trust people. We have to make ourselves vulnerable, where we have to say, you know what? I'm going to take the risk and I'm going to, I'm going to give myself to you. And I trust you. I trust you. And that's so that actually what, what God's doing is he's making himself incredibly vulnerable to, to Adam. He's given him God's giving Adam the opportunity to hurt him. Which I was like, oh, I've never really thought about it like that. Um, you know, I'm giving you I'm giving you full reign to have whatever you whatever you like, and I love to be in relationship, I love to walk with you, but if you do this, that's the end. And that is a big thing, I think. That is a big thing. It's a huge risk that God took. But he wanted relationship of trust. He wanted to grow in Adam the stature and the maturity of which the, the Trinity had experienced all these thousands of years, we can only imagine. Um, and he wanted to grow that in Adam so Adam could fully participate in that Trinity. And that is where I'll leave my part of the story. Okay, thank you, Charles. That was really, really good. So I'm going to pick the story up from Genesis 3. Um, now, you're going to have to excuse me because I am, I am just going to read because I'm not like Charles. I can't like ad lib and flow and do all those things, but I've really got a lot of things that I want to get across, so I'm sort of just going to read and keep looking up as often as I can to you guys. So the plot takes a dramatic shift at the start of Genesis 3. The serpent appears. The presence of the serpent as a metaphor of evil is a mystery, and the Bible doesn't really give us an answer for why it is there. But interesting to note that the presence of evil is there before sin. Not everything about evil can be explained. 
the serpent whispers to Adam and Eve. Um, I'm going to ask people to read it as well, just so you don't get me talking all the time. Could someone read Genesis 3, 1 to 5, please? Please, thank you. Yes, please. Thank you, Emma. So here we become of the enemy of the story. So what do we learn about the enemy? We see him not as a red devil running around with a pitching fork, but as an accuser and a liar. Jesus brought this more into light when he said in John chapter 8, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is the enemy. This is the enemy who appears throughout the story and throughout our lives today. He wanted God's position in heaven and he wanted to steal our authority. In Isaiah we read that he says, I will make myself like the most high. He wanted to become like God. So going back to Genesis 3... Um, we can look at the tactics of the enemy. The first one, he distorts our perception of God. He causes us to question the truth of God's reality. Sometimes what is true to you is not the truth. In speaking in this way, he craftily implies a different story. Did God really say? God wouldn't say that or he would be a spoiler. He tries to distort what we think. The enemy is not primarily interested in getting us to not believe in God's existence, but rather twist our understanding of what God is like. Secondly, he objectifies God. He treats God in the third person. He speaks outside the relational nature of God's commitment to man and makes us feel distance from God. He depersonalizes God. Thirdly, he steals our identity and authority. The enemy goes right for the heart of who we are. He attacks the foundation of our being. He goes after our understanding of sonship and our full dependency on the Father. Imagine, God has been building into Adam his identity as the bearer of his image, his co-partner on the earth, his lover, the object of his love, built from love to love in return. And then the enemy goes for that and tempts man not to look at God as the source of his love and belonging and affection, but to actually become like God. He's essentially saying it's not enough to be God-like. What about actually becoming God yourself? The devil isn't really interested in us worshipping him as he is to get us to worship ourselves. This is where we learn not only about the enemy, we learn something about ourselves. Adam and Eve do the very thing God asked them not to. They ate of the tree and the self that was in love and surrender to God and the channel through which man expressed his love to God now comes between God and man. Because rather than worship of God, man has now worshipped himself. We want to define good and evil for ourselves, which results not in God's definition of good, sacrificial living and giving to others, but will result in selfish outcomes and benefit ourselves. We will define good and evil on our own terms. Even sometimes what we think is good has selfish motives underlying it. We would rather look at our own reflection than look at God's reflection. We spend more time thinking of how others will view us rather than receive our true identity as sons and daughters of God. Henry Newman says, If temptation for power is too great for mankind, and he uses the gift of freedom and free will to choose God over himself, it seems that power is easier for us to choose than love. It seems easier to be God than to love God, easier to control people than to love people, easier to own life rather than love life. If we look at Genesis 3, 6, we see the power of the self. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The result of this, the selfish, self-centred gene has now entered into man and corrupted the image of God in him. Self-absorption, self-promoting, there is poison in the system now. The psalmist was well aware of the power of this in his life. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The world becomes contaminated with sin. Sin will be multiplied, not blessing. So from this we see two main immediate consequences of sin, shame and fear. First of all, we have shame. What was the first thing they do, Adam and Eve? They try to cover up. In Genesis 3-7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Shame enters the story. They knew they were naked. Shame is the fruit, fruit of humiliation that works against the truth. When we see the first signs of what we call the religious spirit, the fig tree cover-up is the idea of trying to look good before God. It is religion trying to impress God. But to be good apart from God is as bad as being evil apart from God. Both are disconnected from life and the source. <clears throat> but can you imagine the grief and heart of God in all of this? As he goes looking for man, we hear the heart cry coming from deep within God. Where are you? He cries. I miss the union. Where have you gone? This is the cry that echoes down throughout the story to every human being. Where are you, my people? At this point, we see the other main consequence of sin. Fear enters the story. God goes looking for man. God still pursues, and that in itself is incredible, that he still pursued. Adam said, I was afraid. Now fear enters the story. The result of this sin and self-centeredness is the purity and innocence of the garden is lost, and fear and shame have now entered. Perfect love is broken because fear has now entered. And in 1 John 4, we read that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The result is broken world and broken relationships. Fear makes us blame something or someone else. The three relationships are broken, man's relationship with God, man's relationship with one another, and man's relationship with the earth. All are fractured and broken. Oh, it's a bit depressing, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's like we know the end of the story. <laughs> it does get better. <laughs> Not at this part, though. I hasten to add. Right. Okay. So, God curses the serpent and he judges Adam and Eve. In his holiness and ultimate justice, sin has to be judged. The result for women will be in childbearing and domination of man. For Adam, the ground that he had originally been commissioned to rule over in harmony is now cursed. The death that comes with sin trickles down into the ground and subjects it to frustration and decay. Yet, this was a really good point, I thought, when I read it. In the midst of this seemingly hopeless place where the plot has gone totally wrong, we should see God's grace in all of it. <clears throat> For in the midst of his deep anguish and distress, he still preserves man. The fact that man is still alive is grace. When all the facts lead to death, if you eat this tree, you will surely die. God still offers life. This text shouldn't simply focus on God's judgment and how displeased he is. We should become aware of the miracle that man has not died. We should focus on how God, in his anguished heart, is dealing with the humanity that he loves, choosing things outside his will for their lives. We further see a sign of grace when he made clothes for them. In Genesis 3.21, we read, The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. He clothed them. So even though they were feeling shame, he still stepped in and clothed them. While we dress to impress in religion, God will dress us himself, which is what he wanted always to be the source of. All of this has mystery that the intellect cannot fully understand. It seems God has reasons in his heart for loving us that our reasons cannot fully comprehend. But we can enter into another depth of love. And we know that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and sin continued to make its way through the earth. Cain and, Cain and Abel are born to Adam. Cain, like Adam, has a choice. God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. 
like every one of us, we all have our sins and we know they're there and it's, it's down to us to, to master them, to rule over it. The psalmist in 1913 says also, keep your servant from willful sins that they may not rule over me and that's got to be the cry of every one of our hearts. So we know that Cain kills Abel and builds a city. What people have been doing for years, killing, abusing one another and building defences. Imagine again the grief in God's heart by chapter 6. Violence and sin has ravished the whole, whole earth. God had reached the point where something is deeply amiss in creation and his promise for it. Could somebody read Genesis 6, 5 to 6, please? Thank you. For every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil. <laughs> That's a massive statement. God is experiencing pain in his heart, grief and regret. Anger may be anger, but in the context of a loving parent watching a child completely walk away from what is best. Not an angry tyrant, but a grieving parent. The word grieve here is the same word used in 3.16 to describe the pain of childbirth for women. God threatens to wipe out the earth, but for one righteous man, someone who just does good. And God used him to continue to see his purposes come to pass. Noah offered a fresh alternative when it looked like there was none. He offers an alternative possibility for the world. We know that Noah built the big 450-foot ark. We filled it with animals, and then the flood came and destroyed the earth. And then Noah becomes the new Adam with the same commission, almost identical words were given, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. And then God makes a covenant to humanity and the rainbow is the renewal of that covenant. The sad thing is, even after this fresh commission to Noah, pride and selfishness multiplies again around the earth, independence from God and life and love. In Genesis 11, we see that people gather in a valley to build a tower their goal in verse 4, let us make a name for ourselves. It seems to be an echo of evil and selfish desire that gripped the heart of Adam and Eve. We can be like God. Babel seems to be an attempt by mankind to attain its own sense of human sufficient oneness and autonomy. The text is telling us that any attempt to do so is vain. God says, we cannot allow you to do that. I cannot allow you to live independent of me. The text here is telling us that Babel epitomizes man's pride and independence and something of God's judgment is delivered, scattering them around the world. Interesting that we see God in his increasing intensity of affection towards humanity. He does not stand outside simply judging, but will enter into it with compassion. This is a big thing for Israel, who the book was originally written for, and for us too. God doesn't abandon creation God can change what looks to already be set in stone. He is the free God who hurts and celebrates, who grieves and loves. This is the God of our story. So ends my talk. But what I'd like you to do now, I just want to pause there, because obviously there's been a lot of information. I'm just going to play a song. I just want you to take some time just to sit and reflect and think about everything that Charles and I have, have just brought to you. <laughs> 